Welcome to this Niche AudioCast. I'm Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche. Today, you're going to hear a webinar that's been converted to a podcast so you can listen to it on the go. You can find all of the resources that are mentioned here and the original recording on the Enrollment Insights blog, which you can find at niche.bz/insights. Enjoy. Okay, everyone, we've got a lot of questions and good things to cover today, so I'm going to go ahead and get us started. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. I'm Angela Brown, and I'm here with the fabulous Amanda Holdsworth of Holdsworth Communications. In our session today, we are going to get into your questions about storytelling and family engagement in 2022. Before we get started, Amanda, why don't you give us a quick introduction and tell us about your background and the work you're doing now for schools? Well, thanks so much for having me, Angela. So uh, my name is Dr. Amanda Holdsworth. I'm CEO of Holdsworth Communications, and I have been working in school communications for more than 20 years. I've worked at the higher ed level, both public and private. I worked at the K-12 level, um, public and private, early childhood, you name it. I run the game. I've also been an assistant professor, so I've been on the other side and now have been consulting for several years. So I'm very thrilled to be here. And uh, Angela and I have talked quite a bit about storytelling. She's a masterful storyteller herself. And it's something that, I don't know, Angela, we've been talking about this probably for six or eight months, just about our shared love of the importance of telling stories, both for marketing purposes, but also admissions enrollment, and then going into fundraising and, and retention, those sorts of fun things. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amanda. So before we jump in, I want to cover a few housekeeping items that always come up for our online events. So first, we will be recording the webinar, and we'll be sending that recording to you tomorrow via email. There will also be an audio version in the form of a podcast that you can find in the Enrollment Insights podcast feed on your favorite podcasting app. If you are not a subscriber, please go ahead and subscribe. And then finally, even though we did gather some questions in advance of today's program, you can still ask questions as we go. So you can find a spot to enter those in the box in your GoToWebinar console. That should load at the bottom right hand of your screen. And we'll try to get to those at the end after we cover the questions that were submitted during registration. So let's jump in. So Amanda, you've just shared that you have a very unique perspective because you've worked in pretty much every education segment <laughs> that you can, including even being an assistant professor. So I'd love for you to share some of the different approaches that you've seen to storytelling among different institutions. Sure, well, you know, I started my career in higher ed more than 22 years ago, so I'm, I'm aging myself a little bit, but you know, when I went into higher ed from nonprofit, which was my first about year and a half of my career, one of the things I noticed in higher ed was that really the storytelling um, focused a lot on the impact on students. So what the, the school or institution, um, the impact on them on their careers. So alumni stories and a lot about faculty expertise stories. So these are the faculty we have available that can speak to the media. You know, my background, I'm, I was a straight PR person. I came from a Master of Arts in Strategic Public Relations at the University of Southern California. And so I didn't have a lot of marketing experience at that point. It was PR. And back then, um, PR was such a beautiful trade. It still is a beautiful field, but it was really the art of storytelling. You know, you're always taught to how do you craft the story so that if your pitch or release ended up in the hands of the right person that they would run it word for word. And so really kind of learning how higher ed would utilize that. And I actually should also note that I started my career in higher ed in Boston. So anybody who's worked in Boston higher ed knows that you throw a stone and you hit another higher ed 
top higher ed institution. So it's very competitive. So you had to figure out who really was your audience, how can you differentiate yourself and attract the right people? And that was more than 20 years ago. And then from there, I moved into private schools and I was very lucky to land at a, a phenomenal institution that understood the use of storytelling. And there we used a lot of alumni stories because we were working a lot on development as well. So alumni and family stories, you know, what the school meant to them. And then, you know, with public higher ed and public schools, it's been a little bit different. It's been sometimes more on programs is what I've seen or, you know, this is how we rank or this is, you know, what is so great about our program or school. And I've seen that kind of trend come back around across not just public institutions across the board, but also private, independent, and charter, that sometimes we focus a little bit more on the metrics or rankings and have gotten away a little bit from storytelling. And to be honest with the pandemic, I can't blame anybody because storytelling takes a lot of time and effort to mine and get those great stories and interview people and, and write them. So with everybody going on the fly, um, it's it's very difficult to sit down and call out those very good stories and get in depth with them. But I'm seeing kind of people start to turn back around and focus on these human interest and impact stories. I think it's interesting to to think about how the two are sort of complementary, right? So mm -hmm. there there is definitely a space for the rankings and and that sort of thing, but they're supported by the stories. Absolutely. Trying to use that lens of having the two go hand in hand and using the storytelling approach to reinforce the rankings and to affirm like why you are Absolutely. where you are, that's where the two can really work together. And being very strategic about it, right? Like it's not just pushing out just rankings and, and those rankings aren't just shared with potential families, right? Those right. should be reiterated with your current families. And how do you do that in a way that's engaging with, with people that you're trying to target whether it's internal or external and so it's it's is a kind of a fine dance and fine balance so i really seen the gamut of how people are doing it especially you know in the last 10 12 years with social media um you know are we are we owning ours are we sharing it you know are we trying with media relations are we doing blogger relations and even now i've seen some schools go into influencer relations which is a whole different beast so using stories to to share who we are versus just those standard taglines that we all used to love so much. I think oh, yeah. that's something that's coming back around quite a bit. I think we still have some folks who love taglines, but that's a that's a that's a webinar for another day. Well you know there used there used to be this website in higher ed about 15 years ago where we could go and search taglines to see if any other school had used them. And I wish I could remember, I looked through all my old files and I couldn't, and I Googled it, but we used to be able to go up whenever we'd come up with the tagline and say, okay, who's used this before? Okay, we're good. Or we can just change a word, it'll be okay. Yep, yep, yeah. I, I can see a lot of people probably nodding their heads through the screen right now. <laughs> So our next question, and this is actually one of mine, I came across a really great piece that you did earlier this school year about elements of telling a strong story. And you alluded to a little bit of that with our last question, but I wanna stick on that for a little bit because one of the things that we talked about, and I think our, our tagline conversation relates to this well, is the importance of a school's brand and identity and its approach to storytelling because so much school content can look the same because right. schools haven't all across the board done that kind of intensive and deep branding work that helps you to tease out those messages that are really unique and authentic to you. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you haven't done that work yet, what are some elements for schools to consider as they're thinking about storytelling in their communities? 
Well, the number one thing that I, I've seen a lot of schools miss, and, and you know, in our agency, we do a lot of PR and branding work together now, um, which is something, you know, a trend that we can talk a little bit about later, but not necessarily like logo branding, more so as you, right. you spoke of almost like the brand essence and the brand identity and the brand messaging. But really it's, you know, who are the target audiences? And this almost comes back to, and again, I'm probably going to speak from the PR lens quite a bit because it is what I first started in, but, you know, who are the, who are the people that you're trying to reach? And as many journalists have told me over my, over my career, you know, as we're pitching stories, why should my readers, that's what they would say, why should your potential audience that you're trying to target, why should they care about this story? You know, what's it, what's it to them? How is this going to be of interest? And that's whether it's a current family or a potential family coming in or a community partner, whatever the case is. So when you actually get down to it and start to drill down, you know, who is it that we're trying to talk to? Why? Why should they care about this? And what is it that we want to leave them with? And it doesn't have to be measurable in terms of like an objective, like, oh, we need to have a 12% brand increase. That's, you know, part of your overall strategy. But more so, you know, is it we want them to have a sense of pride in our school or school district? Or is it we want them to know about this program that we're doing because we don't think enough kids are enrolled in it? You know, whether it's we do a lot of work in career tech ed and pathways and magnet schools. And um, sometimes people don't know about these hidden gems in, say, a school district. And really, why should they care? So what is your purpose behind it? You know, is it to drive enrollment? Is it just to drive interest? Is it to recognize a phenomenal teacher or student? Is it to recognize a parent volunteer? Really think about the purpose of as to why you're doing stories. And Angela, you and I have talked about this a long time. One of the things that we love about working education is that it's just endless stories. And when yeah. I worked in-house in both the private school, you know, and, and then higher ed as well, but mostly a private school and a public school district, I mean, you could tell 50 stories a day, right? So how, as communicators, particularly in-house, can you call down that? You know, what are what are the important stories that I need to get on my radar and why? And with that. What do I want them to do at the end? And I'm not talking about a very blatant like marketing call to action. More so is like, what is that feeling that they need to get? What is it that I want to get across? What is it that I want them to do without being so salesy? I love that. That's really great advice. So now we're going to get into some questions that came in during the registration process. And that there, this is a I've seen variations of this question for the last two years. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's, we've come back to it because we've now been in this place of now what? You know, like we've we've been showing the same things. We're kind of stuck in a communications rut, you know, if you will, because we can't seem to get out of the pandemic. And so what are your thoughts on storytelling in the age of COVID, which this point, I think, is just becoming, you know, it, it's it's normal, right? This is this is I hate to use the overused phrase, the new normal, but that's sort of where we are. And how can schools keep their social profiles and websites engaging when you can't see faces, people are masked, you can't hear voice intonation? Um, I know that you and I have talked about this in the past too, mm -hmm. and and there are some things that I, I think are possible to do, but I'll I'll let you start with this one. Yeah, you know, um, I remember in, in April 2020, and I know we were laughing earlier because we were trying to figure out, was it 2021 or 2020? It feels <laughs> like it's just been going on, on forever, which it has been. But I remember in April 2020 saying to some clients, listen, you need, if you have a teacher who's sitting at home with doing remote teaching with his or her three children sitting around them also trying to do re remote teaching, and they're willing to snap a picture of what their, their life is like, 
that's going to help you with all the negative comments that that people are sending in about you know this is oh it's easy out for teachers or the teachers not doing anything and the schools that did it let me just tell you the response that they had was phenomenal because then people realized you know a month month and a half into this like wow those are people too um you know and and throughout the last year and a half almost two years we've had this story from client or this this question from from clients and potential clients and again it kind of goes down to you know who's your audience and and what is acceptable for them right so there have been some public school districts districts for example that i know that have had very heated debates over masks in school and so it's i could see how sometimes visual storytelling is like with photos and that sort of thing could could um, heat up whereas we've had some independent and private schools whose parents have been extremely happy with the safety measures taking place so we've been able to go in um, i actually have some we're going to talk about photography and i'm going to talk about storytelling because i think that you can normally i use those two um, in combination i have a wonderful photographer that i've worked with my entire career we'd actually go back our whole lives um, until I was four years old. So I've known him forever. But one of the things that, that we've done is we usually integrate the visual storytelling with the words, right? And so during the pandemic, we had people early on saying, listen, we were already starting our brand campaign or we we're starting a new marketing campaign and the pandemic hit. We don't wanna spend you know, money on these pictures because we think in six months from now, there won't be any masks anymore. And we had some schools that were like, you know, I don't care. We're just not going to do anything. We're not going to take any pictures at all. What's happening in the school, whether professional or just on our own, because we just don't want to start the mass debate. And I get that. I can I can understand. But we've gone into schools. And, and if anybody's interested in seeing some of the samples, I put up a hidden page on our website. It's just holdsworthcommunications.com slash photography that Derek Cooks and our photographer did. And about a quarter of those actually were done in the pandemic. And you'll see, depending on the school or the school district and the mask mandates, we had some instances where even as of like two months ago doing um, professional shoots within schools fully masked because there was a specific district that we worked with that had mask mandates so the students and teachers are all masked we had another school district that some of the, some of the or um, some of the photos are masked some of the students what we did was we um, and they were okay with this and, the, and their local mask mandates were that we followed all those local mask mandates we did a lot of profile shots so where the photographer can stand much more than six feet back and stand 12 or 18 feet back with a particular lens and get some great profile shots that you can then use to pull a quote from as you're interviewing students. We did a whole campaign that won several ENSPER awards last year um, based on this with the district of all photos that were done during the pandemic. And we're talking like September 2020 when um, it was just at the height of it, right? And so there are ways to tell those stories and show those stories. I think what's very important though, is that you don't stand still because I've seen too many schools and districts say, okay, you know, we're too busy, we're putting out fires and I get it, I'm former in-house as well. But if you're not telling your story, somebody else is, and I've always said, this is my mantra, and you might not like the narrative. So you have to be able to mix in some of those great stories. And yes, I understand sometimes it's here to, it's hard to hear voice and, and inflections and that sort of thing. However, we've also done this in heavily um, mass mandate districts where we can we've been approved to take the students and or faculty if approved and signed off by parents for for minors where we can mic them and they fully mask until our videographer steps back and you can do the video from afar right you can get a wireless mic on amazon i got ours up for like 12 dollars 
and we can record on the phone, we can do whatever the case is. So you can still get those shots. Are they as natural as in the classroom, the photojournalistic style that, that my agency prefers? You know, not necessarily. However, when you combine that with a great short story about why that student was selected or why this teacher is being profiled or what's so special about what's going on, I think it's absolutely, you know, a wonderful way to add short snippets. Because one of the things that we have found in the last, you know, 22 months is that more schools are doing their own content creation, meaning they're owning their media, their blog content. You know, they're they're not just relying on social media. They're doing more e-newsletters. They're doing more hype emails, what I like to call to potential families. And you can still tell the wonderful things that are happening. And, you know, I will say, and I've said, I've done this even when I was in-house, I felt that having professional photos and, and spending the money on a one-day shoot and there are many, many, many phenomenal photographers out there that I can recommend depending on where you are in the country. They can do a great job and those photos will last you a couple of years. I mean, to the school district that we did in September 2020, do we think that they would still need to have masks in 2022? No, but guess what? They still have some mask photos and they can use those in their marketing materials still. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's it's a matter of the approach and finding the workarounds. I, one thing I will say from my own experience is that it actually is possible to capture facial expressions with masks. Mm-hmm. It's a skill um, and you have to find the right moments, you know, but if a child is laughing in a mask, you can see that, you know, that that yeah. emotion still comes through. And yeah. so I, I think, you know, if you're taking, if you have the resources to outsource photography, which if you're doing something like a big brand refresh and you need a new photo library or you're relaunching your website, those are definitely places where you would want to have more polished, high quality photography. Um, finding the right photographer is absolutely essential. That's something that I had to deal with when I was in house and we actually rebranded, relaunched our website and couldn't do our photo shoot because it was scheduled for April of 2020 mm. and the school wasn't open. And so we had to wait a few months and then make that decision of, do we do a photo shoot with masks or do we wait? And thank goodness we didn't wait because here we are, you know, almost going into, you know, the fall two years later, where I think hopefully the school is very grateful to have those masked photos now, but that's where it was really important to find a very skilled photographer who was gifted in capturing really great photos under normal circumstances and could sort of apply that to um, these abnormal circumstances that that we're living in now and you know adhere to the distancing requirements and all of that. Um, but if you are doing everything in house, you can find those opportunities too. You just Absolutely. have to look a little bit harder. And you know, for them. iPhone, iPhone portrait is probably the best thing I've ever had because, and especially with, with social distancing, right? Because you have to get it. It's about four to six feet anyway yeah. to yeah. before it comes into focus. And if anybody wants to email me after, I'm happy to share the link to the independent school that we did a lot of PR marketing with last year and their missions director went around with the iPhone doing the portrait setting. And let me just tell you, I thought that they had hired a professional photographer because, and she just did it right out with the iPhone and the photos were wonderful. And she was so engaged on social media and you know what parents, especially like right now, there's not really, there aren't really a lot of volunteer opportunities in my daughter's school because of COVID. I don't, so I don't know what's happening in a classroom. I just much rather see pictures of the kids masked and doing something than having no idea what's going on in those four walls. And I think that when we stop telling stories 
um, that's when people start to get disengaged. Yeah, never underestimate the power of an iPhone. Right. <laughs> that's, it's great for photography and for video. And, yes. and it's something that just about everyone has. So you don't need a big budget for it. It's it's something you're already carrying around in your pocket. And, it can and I, I'll just say one more thing with this one, Angela, because I know we have to move on, but also tap into parent and alumni stories. You know, if you have, if particularly if you're independent or at private school, I mean, this works for public schools as well, but you have some great alumni who can share, this is where I'm at now, interview them, and they can send in their own picture. I mean, how fun would that be to do a post every week or something on the website about this is where they're at now? Because I know we're gonna get into that a little bit, but those alumni yeah. stories and testimonials are so powerful that that's another way to keep people engaged and fresh. Agreed. And everything doesn't have to be super high polished. You know, right. it, it is okay if someone sends you an iPhone photo that was taken in low lighting. Well, you know, that's exactly what I was just thinking. I was like, you know, I think for us perfectionists, which I think happens a lot in communications and marketing because we're used to being um, raked over the coals. If something is, there's a mistake or something, we're told by 400 people that there's a spelling error or there's a letting error in between two words. I think if anything, the pandemic has given us a little bit of leeway that it, things don't have to be always be perfect to be real. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our next question is, what are some of the stories that you've seen resonate with younger families? So this is a good question. Um, it's a little bit difficult because when we say younger families, we mean younger families with little kids or younger families that maybe have older kids or younger younger families in between. But I, I can give some examples of some of the schools that, that we've worked with and I've seen do a really great job with this, particularly families. And I'm going to answer this and I'm happy to answer another way, but I answer it as families who are just starting the school process or early on in the school process, especially going in with the pandemic. You know, they don't know what to expect. I've seen this even with my my own neighbors with having their their oldest start school during the pandemic, whereas my oldest was already in school during the pandemic, so I kind of knew what to expect. But it's really showcasing the stories of, you know, who are the people that are teaching them? Who are the people that are going to be around them? What are some of the fun things that they're doing? Um, you know, if you're a niche school, is for example, we have a one Montessori client. We've done a lot of work with their local paper on stories and tips that can help parents at home, particularly like during winter break or during the summer vacation or on weekends or even things in, that are very Montessori-esque, like they call it toilet training, not potty training, um, mm -hmm. different articles that we've submitted, but first they are sent out to the families first so that they're getting inside peak. And then when they see that reiterated in their local press, they get, they get pretty excited. So a lot of stories and of course photos. Um, and again, it's really knowing, I, I don't wanna be too general, but it's again, really knowing like, what is your school's target audience? You know, are, are you looking at a very specific niche of, of families or parents or students, or is this like a broad across, across the board? But I can just tell you from what we've seen in different clients in both public and private is that parents just wanna know that their kids are okay, their kids are safe, the kids yeah. are having fun, the kids are learning. And so I think it's just engaging in different stories that, that work and again, with anything that we go on today, I'm happy to answer or share at least examples if I can find them um, from even schools that, that I've seen do a great job with anybody. But um, I'm just trying to think here, what are some other stories? Do you have any that you want to chip in, Angela? Maybe that might. might yeah, I actually, we do have a question later in the deck that talks about how to speak to a wider range of age groups from, mm -hmm. from a PK-12. So, um, 
we'll touch on this a little bit then, but we do have some data from our parent survey that really digs into what parents care about in different age groups. And the two themes that were very prevalent across the board were teacher qualifications and small class sizes. Those were things that for parents going into, looking for schools, new schools for their children coming into this last fall in 2021, those were absolutely paramount. And then there are some nuanced differences by age group from there. And so I would start with that, you know, really leaning into stories around what that individualized instruction looks like. So not just saying we have small class sizes, but what does that look like within the context of your institution and how are students benefiting from that? I think that's an opportunity for schools to take things one step further beyond having a bullet on your website and actually visibly demonstrating what that means and how students yeah. benefit from it. And then highlighting your teachers, which is something that you mentioned earlier, I think both from a retention standpoint at a time when teacher yes. recruitment and retention is really hard, and also to really help families understand, okay, these are the people that are shaping the experience that my child is going to have. You can do that with profiles on your website. You can do that with spotlights and stories on your social channels. Yes. blog posts that go really in-depth, profiles of, you know, teachers and staff who are interacting with students and student-facing, um, mm -hmm. you know, just hearing from teachers talking about not just, you know, here's my name, here's the subject I teach in the grade, but why do you teach what you teach? What inspired you to become a math teacher or a history teacher or a social studies teacher? And what is it about teaching at this school in this environment that gets you out of bed every day? Those are the types of stories that are really compelling and that families can actually connect with as they're thinking about bringing a small child to a new and unfamiliar place. It's, it's definitely humanizing, right? And so, you know, when we talk about younger families, I have a very young, I have a six-year-old. So I started, I started later. So we also have friends that are my age that have kids that have graduated from college. So we're a little bit different, but at the same time, I'm still the, the same, I'm in the parent of a, you know, a child in the same class as my daughter. So when we think about it, some of the stories I can say that I personally love from my, my daughter's school is, you know, we have a new, very energetic young art teacher who's very creative with the art background. And she's been teaching them not just about the art, but um, about why that this type of art is important in society. So to think that a six-year-old can understand and grasp like why pottery is really important and why painting can be important and how this can be fun and how you can be creative, to me, I think that's just like such a wonderful story. And then, you know, kind of going up a little bit in the scale, parents also want to know, and I remember seeing this, and I'd be very interested if Niche has this, this data too, um, when I used to be, I started as an admissions PR director, my very first um, private school 20 years ago. And parents of pre-K always wanted to know where the graduates of our pre-K through eight school ended up. Um, and that was a little, it was a little intense for me. I wasn't a parent at the time, but just showing those pathways too yeah. of, you know, we also not necessarily career wise or, or we, they got into the top, you know, high school or they got in the top middle school where they did X, Y, and Z, but also just kind of showing how the community was engaged. Um, a great example that my daughter's district, uh, district did was we moved here a couple of years ago and the elementary school is right next to the high school. And so at the very beginning of the year, the high school students come over and they do like a fun run that they organize and they set up for the kids. And that was one of the big stories. And immediately I just felt the sense of relief, like, oh good, they have all these teenagers over there, but they're okay in their elementary school, but more so like, 
wow, like they're really connecting the community. Like my daughter can see how she's going to go into that high school one day and look forward to being at that high school because those high school kids were so kind to to the the elementary kids. And so I think just any kind of connections, um, yeah. you know, I think they're so important in storytelling. I love that. That's great advice. And we'll we'll dig into some more age specific storytelling in just a bit. So this is an interesting one. It's it's pretty specific. This is a school that's a therapeutic day school with students who have social, emotional and learning challenges. So it's critical for them to tell their stories ethically. How would you address this particular challenge? So um, I actually we actually have a client that um, serves students that have different uh, learning differences and um, they might be students who have experienced some kind of uh, trauma in their past. So a lot of privacy is required. Um, and so what we actually do is we focus on the families. We do a lot of family storytelling with it um, and talking about the impact that the school has made on the families because sometimes parents just wanna hear from other parents that you know it's gonna be okay that this school is really a great fit. And it's not the standard testimonial that we're using in view books or on websites or sort of thing. It's, it's more of an in-depth profile to the extent that a family is comfortable sharing. If they're not comfortable sharing their last name, they don't have to share their last name. If they're not comfortable sharing a family picture, they do not have to whatsoever. But the fact of the matter is, is that we've, we've had a lot of families and once one um, tells their story for a blog post or a newsletter article for the website and then that can be shared out via social media. Others are willing to do it. It's just kind of sometimes getting that that first family. So I can tell you um, with one of our clients in particular, we worked with a family who whose um, child had severe social anxiety, um, mm -hmm. very bad, been bullied um, and that sort of thing. But we actually focused more when um, she, the, the family had transferred to this other school. We just focused more on the journey. Um, of the family, like the, the the mother talked with the anxiety she had, trying to make sure things were okay for her child and just frustrated I couldn't find the right fit, had heard about this specific school and thought, you know what, let's, I just wanna come check it out. The child thought it would be pretty neat to try out. And then they just talk about the impact on the family. And of course it doesn't, you know, heal everything, but just a sense of relief that mom and dad felt when they found the school and to see their child happy and engaged and learning. And without having to go into all the specifics as to um, maybe what the anxiety is or the, the social emotional learning challenges are, you're able to talk about that um, and talk more about what does it mean to the family. And in some cases, we've had where the students want to want to share, you know, what this means. And some of them will open right up. I've had schools before where students will say, I mean, I had one school a few years ago where a student blatantly said to me in an interview, I would have killed myself if I would have stayed at the other school. And that was probably the first time, first and only time I've ever come close to crying a couple of times. I've done probably about 3,000 student interviews in my career. That was like the first time that I had to like excuse myself because it was just so blatantly out there. Um, and of course, that's not something we put in the story afterward. But the, once that student felt comfortable sharing that, the, the rest of the story came out in a way that was very responsible. And especially when we're talking about these types of stories, I'm, I'm happy to share some of them. But I think more and more we're looking at, we're looking at, you know, what is the impact on the school doing for that family and for the student? Or do you have alumni that went on that can come back and talk to or alumni parents? You know, alumni parents are also great. That's something that sometimes ignored, you know, their child graduated 15 years ago. Maybe, we, you know, if you're at an independent or private school, you hit them up 
every year for the annual fund. Well, why not revisit? Just say, you know, you were such an integral part of our campus community 10 years ago. Want to know how, you know, Johnny or Jane, how they're doing right now? Is it, you know, we've been, sometimes you might get, hey, we're fine, we're good. And other times you might get some stories. So I think sometimes it's it's reaching those who want to be able to share their story. Um, I have another instance right now where I'm actually, I was just pitching this one to the media. And this is actually um, with physical dis disabilities or phys physical difficulties, I should say. And with that, we're not we're not sharing pictures. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. something that the family or um, school is comfortable doing. However, we're talking about how this particular classroom is using technology to engage students in ways that has not been seen before. And there are different methodologies of teaching. And just to kind of show that these students were not forgotten, that the, in fact that these students, the school had invested heavily in these students with the use of technology and um, learning assistance. And so we're able to tell that story in a way that doesn't isolate them or um, you know take away anything from them in terms of of ethics or even just like human kindness. You know, it's it's telling yeah. the story in ways that makes them feel good about it, but also they're okay with. We always have families sign off always on stories. Um, I have no problem if a parent wants to tweak something. The whole thing is that it's they have to be comfortable with it. And we've had some instances where families have also said, yeah, we actually want to share a story. I mean, we take photos, even video, and they come back and say, you know, I'm really sorry, but I'm not comfortable doing that. They mm -hmm. usually say, absolutely no problem, no problem. Even if you spend all this time and, and maybe even money doing some of it, you have to respect that, so. Yeah, that's great advice. So I'm gonna jump ahead to our wide age range question, because I wanna make sure that we get through as many of these as possible and also that we can hopefully get to some questions that come in live. So this is the preschool to 12th grade independent school that I mentioned that I, I knew was coming. Um, asking about stories that resonate best across parents with children in such a wide age group. Um, and this one, I it's near and dear to my heart because this is the exact environment that I was in, actually. Um, before I joined Niche, I was at a JK-12 school in the D.C. area. Um, and so this was something that we looked at a lot. And we do have some data between our parent survey um, and just some of, some of my experience in the past that I think can help with some of the different things that families in different age groups are looking at. So we talked about the teacher qualification and class size piece, mm -hmm. which was a little bit of a shift from COVID safety, which was a really big resounding recurring theme in 2020. I can uh -huh. see us kind of going back in that direction now with this new <laughs> variant, but there was definitely a shift from anxiety around COVID protocols to, I just want my child to be learning and learning <laughs> effectively. Yeah. That was something we saw across the board. And so that's where the individualized learning and, and teacher piece is really important. And then as you look at the really specific age groups, what we also saw was that for middle school, social emotional learning and, um, and just the way that kids are interacting with the peers, mm -hmm. the mental health issues, those were huge, 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 huge factors. And that was actually something we added because we heard so much anecdotally about what a challenge that was and how that was presenting with kids in that age group going into this year after, for the most part, not being in school and being around their peers for an extended period of time. 
But then with high school, it was much more academically driven. And so that was where parents were really interested in things like school rankings, which we talked about, AP classes, college matriculation. And so there are different opportunities for different age groups. I think the, the key takeaway is that there are opportunities to go both broad and deep. You know, you really do have to do both when you're serving an audience that's that wide, especially in instances where you may have one family that has a child in each of those age groups or divisions that you might be serving. And so, you know, you might want to focus more on the individualized attention and um, teacher quality on a broad level. As you get into middle school, you can highlight some of the SEL things that you're doing with social emotional learning. If you have special programs at your school, like mindfulness, which I know um, was kind of gaining in popularity with schools in recent years. If you're doing any sort of special programming for students, you know, having guest speakers come in and facilitators, those are things that you can highlight so that families know those things are happening at your school and those resources and supports are available to their children. And on the high school side, you know, that's a great opportunity if you have some differentiation with your college counseling program or really great student outcome stories. Those are some great ones that you can incorporate there. Um, and then, of course, we do love testimonials where appropriate. Those are always good and they, and they can take different forms. Right. And again, be supportive, you know, to the to the rankings and reviews and some of the other things that that I think schools can lean on. Yeah, I think uh, you nailed it with, with everything, especially the social emotional piece. I mean, that was probably the number one thing that we saw and we were actually pushing with a lot of clients, particularly last year, is even with remote, um, you yeah. know, how are we supporting students um, SEL? I think um, going back to what I had said earlier, it's the connection. So uh, my husband went through a K through 12 school. It was all in uh, one building in different parts of the building. And I worked in a number of schools. I worked um, in the mid 2000s at Detroit Country Day School, which is a phenomenal um, institution, which is a pre-K through 12 school on different campuses. And you know, particularly being in the private independent school world, you're worried, always worried about retention, right? It's you know, at certain ages. Um, I worked at private schools. I would go through, you know, through K through eight. Uh, we have some clients that go through pre-K through six. We have some that go the gamut plus public schools, right? So public schools in, in reality, the pathway is to start in maybe JK and go up through 12th grade. And I think one of the things that gets ignored does not matter the type of institution really are how are you connecting older students and younger students in ways that you're showing that you have the community support within the, the school district or within the school. So whether it's, uh, you know, my husband always talks about he has a younger brother who's eight years younger than he is and he always talks about how his class when he was in 12th grade would be a teacher's aide was part of their volunteer work and he always got to use he would get to be in his younger brother's classroom and I look at that and like talk about what a phenomenal story that would be for the school website or if they had social media back then or the school newsletter um so different stories like how are you finding out like what works because i think as parents and it's funny that i start working in school pr a long time before i even had kids but now as parents i just want to see how my, my child or how my children are gonna be cared for all the way through. And I don't mean like handheld or, um, you know, like always watched over like a helicopter parent. I'm talking about the whole, the community as a whole, right? So how are the ways that, the, the, like where I moved to in our town a couple of years ago, it's a very community feel. And that's the reason that we moved here because you have a sense that the community is gonna take care of each other. The school district, 
that everybody's going to take care of each other within the school district. And so looking at what are those connections and how are you integrating, especially if you're on one campus, I mean, I think you have so many neat stories that you could tell as a fifth grader, you know, the fifth, fifth grade students connecting with the first grade students. Are they reading buddies? Are the middle school students being the bus buddies for the elementary kids? Are the high school students being the coach for the elementary or middle school um, teams? What are those ways that are showing like, hey, we're a family. We've got your back all the way through this. And public schools can do this, too, even if the schools are on different campuses and they're different schools just showing an, like how we integrate everybody in our in our district in ways that engage them. I know with our district, um, the high school opens up for the, the elementary and middle schoolers to try out for their plays. So for the arts performances, they can come and try out. Or they do things at homecoming football game where they pick, I don't, I don't know what it's called, but it's like the little, little mister and little miss or something that goes with the homecoming court. And they take nominations of kids who have done nice things for the community, and then they bring them out for, with the homecoming court at the homecoming game and invite all the elementary students for free. Or the high school soccer team will let the middle school soccer team come in and watch the games for free. Those are all wonderful stories. And if it's not particular, you know, it's very hard to say, unless you're a very small school, to say, how can I connect because 50% of our parents have a child in 10th grade and also in third grade? It's very hard to kind of pinpoint that exactly. But if you look at across a broad spectrum of connection, I think that's important. I think that's such a great point because, you know, one of the things that I think families really think about as they're looking at schools, they're not just looking for a place to send their children to school. They're looking for a community. And our schools have replaced a lot of more traditional communities like churches, like country clubs, like some of these membership organizations that used to be where people went for community. The schools are, be, are playing that role on an increasing basis for families. And so, you know, I think showing those integrations between age groups is a really great way to do that and to show how people are inter interacting with one another. Um, it's something that I, I think private schools do relatively well to some degree, but there's definitely room for more of that, especially if you're a school that has multiple campuses. Um, and it's a great opportunity for, for public schools to really show, especially since they tend to be larger populations, you know, how are those communities coming together and how are they forming those connections? I think that's a really great approach. Yeah, and you know, we have, and, and also not to forget too, looking at our audience, you know, are you in an area that has a high immigrant and refugee population? It's mm -hmm. very community centered. And sometimes, you know, you, you just struck a chord with me, Angela, because I, I, I'm just place historian, um, US News and World Report in December for a client, um, because they talked about how they're, they're essentially within the school district, this whole kind of little academy that they've put together, um, the, the community for immigrant and refugee families like they are it like they are the ones that are providing all the information they are the ones that are you know providing technology and job placements and you know whatever it might be so how is it that it's resonating and they're serving these students across the gamut of, of the entire school as they get um, integrated into the United States that's great so our next question this is actually this is a fun one uh, for folks who are new to working in admissions and enrollment, or if you've been doing it for a while, what is the best piece of advice you have for people new to this role? What is something that you wish someone would have told you when you first started out? Well, I first have to say, I definitely appreciate this question because 
you know, being older and wiser now, um, and I can admit my wrongdoings, but, um, you know, my first job, as I mentioned earlier, um, in K through 12 was at, uh, independent school as director of admission and PR. And I guess in some little tiny way, I mean, it was a little bit cocky about it because I knew my background was in PR and I worked a little bit in admissions and higher ed. So I thought I kind of knew everything and this was my job and I didn't want to ask for help from other roles because I, part of me was, they knew what they were doing, like that they had their jobs. We were small, but, but mighty team. I didn't want to put more work on them. And other part of me was kind of like, well, I want to prove that I know what I'm doing, that they hired me for a reason. And, and I would, I would never do that now. Now I'm never afraid to ask questions, but um, I should have, when I held my first open house only like a month into being on the job, I was exhausted and there were probably a lot of things I did wrong. I thought it went pretty well, but it was one of those things that afterwards, like, you know, even if it was, you know, somebody that was working in the cafeteria or one of our admins, I really should have asked better questions um, and and listened a little bit better. And I'm not saying everybody does this, but for me personally, at least I've, I've big enough now to admit that I should have asked other questions. Um, you know, instead we kind of went through, well, when did you usually have the open house? What did you do? Okay. That was about it. But I didn't get into the depth. Like what are some things like asking things like, what did the person before me, like, what should they have done better? Or what should you have done better? Or how can I make your job easier? So there, those are different questions that I think I would have asked. And for a new director of enrollment, I think it's so, so, so important. And it's the same thing for a communications or marketing director as well. Get to know everybody. Spend your first month, and I'm not a big meeting person, Angela. I know you, you and I have talked about this before, but um, get to know everybody and spend three or four weeks talking to every single person. If you're a small school, you can get that done probably in two or three weeks. Talk to families, talk to parents. If you're an independent private school, you probably have a board made up mostly of parents or alumni parents or alums. Talk to them. Read any kind of data that you can get your hands on. Take webinars. Just really get to understand not only the job, but more importantly, the community. Um, because if your goals as you're setting up your plan as a director of enrollment, and we do a lot of en enrollment marketing and enrollment management, and one of the things we see is that the goals don't always align with the strategic vision of the school or the district. So, you know, you might have somebody in the board or, or head of school or um, head of the board say, okay, well, we want to increase by X amount. But then when you look at the strategic plan, that, that's nowhere like incorporated more, maybe more so it's like, oh, if we want to create a more caring environment or whatever it might be. So taking a look at, well, okay, I understand that maybe these are my KPIs or what I should set as a goal, but why? What is the rationale? Um, we have one client right now that they're going to be um, over overfilled pretty soon. And it's not, it's not any work that I did. I'm not taking any credit for it at all, but it's a matter of, when, when one person is being told, okay, we need to get more and the admissions is working their tail off and they've gotten more, you have to take a look at, did I get the right people for the role? Are these the right, or, or for the, the spots that we have open? Are these the right fit? Um, you know, are these the types of families that, that we, want, we want in our community? And, and just really figuring out who are we targeting, why, and how does this align with the strategic vision? And if you're not doing the marketing side, if you're only doing enrollment, it's getting on the weekly calendar of your comms or marketing manager so you can get on the same page because they might already have yeah. plans in place. I don't know about you, Angela, but I know most run a July 1 to June 30 budget. And if you're starting in October, November, December, January, most likely most of that money has already been allocated. Mm -hmm. um, so you might say that you want to add another three open houses. 
but if marketing doesn't have the the dollars to support that advertising or you know uh, marketing campaigns for it then they've got to think about different ways to do it and they also have to have time to plan for it you know to right. promote it um, to put the social media so that's what i would do I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm publicly admitting this now to hundreds of people that I made <laughs> lots of errors when I first started as an admissions enrollment director, but you live and learn, right? I, I think that everyone has probably had that experience of making mistakes. And I, I really like the piece about taking time to meet with other stakeholders in your community. I think that's a great takeaway for anyone in a leadership position in a school. Um, I think sometimes you can be in such a rush to execute and to make an impact and, and leave your mark on your position. But there is a lot of value about taking that time to meet with other people, people who know more than you do. You know, knowing what you don't know is always important in a new environment, even if you're a seasoned marketer or admissions person or PR professional. Every time you change environments, there's something new to learn about that community. Absolutely. And it's not dismissing, you know, my, my father-in-law was a custodian for the school and I'm so proud of the work he did. And he was so revered in the community. Everybody knew that if they needed to get something done, they went to him. And let me just tell you, he knew everything that went on in that school. He knew what, you know, the parents were saying, he knew what the students were saying, he knew what the teachers were doing. Cause he was often, you know, having to be in there after hours or on weekends, he knew everything. And if I would have met him like later on, like earlier on in my career, I probably would have been, that would have been one of the first people I would have met when I was in-house because um, they're often overlooked. And that's very sad because they're, they're wonderful people and they they help with the school, but they also have so much knowledge and you can't just dismiss anybody. Bus drivers are phenomenal. The type of dirt you can yeah. get from bus drivers, and I don't mean gossip, <laughs> just like hearing their frustrations, especially in times of, you know, when you have bus driver shortages and things, it's it's just really listening to those people because that all plays into enrollment, right? If you have people on the inside that are, are, are unhappy or things are going on inside, that's going to show outside and that's going to directly affect your role as a director of enrollment. That's great. So I'm actually going to jump to one question that I know is going to take us a while <laughs> to respond to. And then we'll do some rapid fire Q&A from the chat because I do see a few questions over there. I've been kind of keeping my eyes on. So this next one, this is a big one. Amanda and I talked about this behind the scenes. We have a lot to say about it. How can we help enroll a more diverse audience in private schools? So I'll, I'll let Amanda take the first pass at this one and then I'll jump in. This is, um, I think that's a very, a very broad question. So if we mean, you know, more diversity in terms of our, our student body and things, um, I think you have to, I mean, I'm going to be quite frank and blunt with this. If you, if you want my, more diversity in your school, then you better have more diversity on your, your staff and faculty. Um, I think that that's a key component. I think you need to look at your messaging. And I don't mean like, hey, let's get a, you know, the standard stock photos. And I, and I don't mean to be, um, you know, just very to the point about this, but so many schools used to do this 20 years ago where they'd get the stock photo and they'd have kids of all different ethnic backgrounds and they'd slap it in a view book and call it a day. But that does not look like your school community. That's lying. That's that's false advertisement. I'm sorry. You know, you, you can't do that. So I think when you're trying to look at a more diverse audience, um, you know, what is the purpose? Do you mean more diversity? And, you know, are you a religious school and you want, you know, you're going non-denominational and you want more um, 
religions in the school? Is it that you want more boys versus girls because you have a heavy girl? What is it, you know, and then why do you want it? Obviously, we all know that diverse student bodies and diverse faculty and staff provide a richer learning environment. We've got a doctor in education. I say this for, for three years about just the wealth that you can, that you just learn from people from all over, whether it's racial, socioeconomic, I mean, whatever the case might be. And when you're looking at that, looking, I would also just look inward and go, why don't we have a more diverse audience? If, whether it's a student body or, or faculty and staff, I'm not sure exactly which way this question is going, but why don't we? What have we been, and let's be honest, I mean, I just admitted my, my downfalls, what I did earlier in my career. So and that's sometimes hard for schools to do. Why don't we have a more diverse audience? What have we not been doing well? How have we not been serving these families well? And how can we ensure that we're serving them better? Um, I, I know we have, um, we had one private school, independent school client. They did a phenomenal job because they brought in a new head who was extremely committed to diversifying the student and family body. And he, first thing, going back to what I said about the director enrollment, went and talked to families. What can we do better? You know, what is it that we're missing? And within about a year, year and a half, you brought in a phenomenal um, social justice curriculum, a very diverse multicultural base, added more languages to what they were teaching and offering. And guess what? Diversity started to happen naturally. It wasn't forced and it wasn't a marketing plea. It was, they sat down with the board, they sat down with faculty and staff, they sat down with families, they brought in alumni family, they even brought in alumni. Say, what can we do better? We need to meet the needs of different students. We've obviously not been, been meeting it. What have we done wrong? And not to place blame on past administrations or anything, right. but what can we do better? Why do we want to do better? And how can we keep this going five, 10, 20 years from now? That this is, we are committed to this, that this is not just a marketing thing to fill seats. I think you touched on a lot of things that are, are floating around in my mind, but I'll start with the fact that what often happens when there is some sort of gap at a school um, or in a school community, the first instinct is to make it a marketing problem. And it's not always a marketing problem. Right. And so if you are missing something, if there's a recruiting issue from a faculty standpoint, if you would like to enroll a more diverse student population, if there is negative word of mouth or perception, it's actually not, those are all things that can't necessarily be solved with marketing. You have to solve some things institutionally before the marketing office can take the ball and run with that. Mm -hmm. And so when you're thinking about diversity, I think it's really important to Amanda's point to take a step back and think about what barriers might exist to achieving your goals before you start getting into marketing tactics and looking at how diversity is even defined in your community. Because right. as you mentioned, sometimes you might be looking for more visible diversity like gender, race, ethnicity. Maybe you're looking at socioeconomic diversity. Maybe you're looking for something else entirely. And so if it's visible diversity, that's where you probably need to focus on more intentionally recruiting diverse faculty and staff, 
bringing those diverse voices into your programming. And that results in a more authentic message that you can then communicate out. But if you're trying to recruit more students of color, for example, but there are no supports in place to make sure that they feel safe and included in your community, there's no diversity in your curriculum, there's no one walking the halls who looks like them, you may be able to recruit those students with photos and messaging, you know, website copy, but you won't retain them. And so I think you have to really look at things holistically and really take a step back and think about, okay, what is it that we're trying to achieve? What does diversity mean within the context of my institution? Um, another thing that I think is really important for schools that charge tuition to keep in mind is if you're looking for socioeconomic diversity, then you really need to take a look at your tuition model and financial mm -hmm. aid and how you can make your school more accessible to a wider range of mission appropriate families before, again, you can start to try to solve that problem with admissions and marketing. So. In general, it's really about thinking strategically about what you want your school's population to look like, and that will tell you what you should be focused on. Yeah, absolutely nailed it. And you know, when we look at my my postdoc research was actually in the effects of organizational culture on your external brand. And so as a developer, they call it culture comm model. It's basically as what you just said, Angela, we can do all the best marketing possible, but if the inside stinks. People are going to find out pretty quick and there's really no industry other than education where people find that out very quickly um, because you have parents, particularly pre-pandemic, where parents were in the classroom or they're on the school more, they could see they could see it for themselves what was going on. And so I think that's important. And then I also want to touch on um, the language because I'm on the um, National Schools Public Relations Association. I'm on the benchmarking committee for uh, diversity inclusion within school communication. So how is it that we're communicating and looking at the messaging? So if you want more diversity in terms of if you are in a very diverse area, you have different languages spoken, is your application in, the, in those languages? Have you, and, I've, and we just recently did this for a client, where I went and had the website tested in the five main languages in the district so that we could analyze what to district um, by native speakers not just with Google Translate or anything like that, because it doesn't necessarily always translate those cultural contexts. So what is it that they're seeing? Um, is the newsletter in multiple languages? Is it, and I could go on about accessibility yeah. because I do a lot of accessibility training, like are, is your website, all, all your materials accessible? So it's really just taking a look at what are those goals. That's that's perfect. And I'm seeing lots of snaps and affirmations in the chat. <laughs> it looks like our, our diversity discussion definitely resonated. And we are at time, but for folks who are willing to hang on for a couple more minutes, Amanda, if you have a few more minutes, I'd love sure. to get into some of the Q&A um, just to make sure that we answer as many questions as we can. And, and just so everyone knows two things. Yes, we are recording and this will be published um, on the Enrollment Insights blog, on the Enrollment Insights podcast, and you will receive an email tomorrow that has the recording. So feel free to share with a friend. And if you need to jump off, no worries, you'll be able to capture the tail end of our discussion once that recording goes out. And also you will have my contact information because you'll receive that email from me. But I'll also include Amanda's in the um, recording information that goes out. So if there's anything we don't get to you this afternoon and you want to reach out to one of us, please don't hesitate. We we would absolutely love to hear from you and, and help you answer some of these questions that you're dealing with. 
So one is, this is a fun one. <laughs> what is your favorite app for helping with storytelling? Hmm. Mm, my favorite app. You know, I don't see. I actually don't use a lot of apps on my phone, <laughs> but I can give you my, my two favorite programs for quick storytelling. So I actually use Google Drive and I use um, the voice function. Oh, um, that's a gift. Because <laughs> I am very old school and my retention of knowledge comes from when I write things down. And so what I do is I immediately, as soon as possible, transcribe my notes. And oftentimes I'm on the run. So if it's on my, I always have my laptop on me. I just kind of bust it open also because I have to wear cheaters all the time now. So the apps <laughs> don't really work too well. Um, I transcribe. And then Canva. Canva is always great for creating a uh, quick social post if we need them. Um, everything's branded. I've got the different or different clients are branded in there. You can pop a photo in and go. I actually, two years ago, I actually want to trip around the world from Canva for a uh, design I created on my phone using the app. While I was waiting for my daughter's Girl Scout meeting to be done. <laughs> so Cam and I have a good relationship. I love it. I love it. I, I would also add, I mean, this is an obvious one, but really I think Instagram is extremely versatile. Um, and I say that because one of the challenges that that I've been hearing about on an increasing basis is the question of how do we engage both prospective parents and guardians and students. And Instagram is a little bit of a utility player in that it allows you to do that very effectively. Um, it also allows you to do it without necessarily taking on another channel. So I'm a big fan of Reels. I've been kind of watching the emergence of Reels with, uh, with public schools in particular. It seems like they're adopting them a little bit faster than some of the private schools. But if you are TikTok averse or don't want to take on something new, Reels are actually a really great way for you to dip your toe into that water. Um, so I'm a huge, huge fan of, of Instagram. Now our next one is, ooh, one challenge that we face is creating stories in a scalable manner, especially a, like a series. So you have any advice on crafting a series for our website or social media? Absolutely. And I'm happy to actually um, share a Google Drive, a Google Sheet template that I use to create a content calendar. And what, when I say content calendars, what, what we do, and we've done this with, with some of our clients, we sit around and say, okay, um, particularly say, say you have multi-campuses, right? Um, and we'll talk about that first, but you know, go from, go around, which, which campus has which story? What kind of story do we have? Do we have an interesting student story? Do we have an interesting alumni story? One of the faculty doing some neat things like we just did one for a client that the faculty, new science teachers came in, who was a free, uh, former marine biologist. So of course we want to interview her and get her picture up um, and nothing, nothing super fancy. But when you go around and start asking people for ideas, particularly if you're new um, or in the pandemic where you might not always be on campus or in the classroom, you start to get this whole list of ideas. And then what we do is we go through, and honestly, this does not have to take much time at all, and I'm happy to walk somebody through it, but you really just sit down and go, okay, so do you have particular key messages? Maybe you have four cornerstone key points that you wanna put out about your school. Maybe not, maybe you're a huge district that has different things. Whatever it is, just try to rotate them. Don't do two of the same theme in a row. And as you develop that content calendar, you have right in there, who is our ideal customer avatar? Like who are we trying to reach with this story? And then what is the theme? And then as you see, and that's so why I love Google Sheets. And I think there was actually um, a comment about this in one of the, the private Facebook groups yesterday. And the great thing about Google Sheets is that 
as you start to put those stories together in a list and see who you have, you can easily just copy and paste or cut and paste and move that story up or down. Or say there is a student you were supposed to interview and they didn't get back to you and that kind of throws everything off. That's fine. Just bump things up one and bump that one down. So I think that's the, the, that's the absolute easiest way um, stories come. Sometimes it's that first story. Sometimes it's so hard. And I can tell you any single, yeah. whether it's higher ed, private school, public school district, clients, that first story is always the most difficult to get, particularly if you're interviewing a teacher because they're on, for the most part, very humble about what they do. And they, what they think that they're doing might not be that special because it's their job they see it. Whereas us communicators, we're like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing story. How does somebody not know about this? Once you get one, I promise you it's like dominoes. Then others start agreeing. Not everybody will agree. And then you just lump everything together and you take a look. And I can just tell you right now, this is the second year doing for one client. And at the beginning of the school year, we had enough already planned for the whole school year just to do one a week. It was just incredible just to do. And, and that's a lot of lot of work. And it doesn't have to be that intense. It could be one a month. But just taking a look at that or finding the profiles, doing a staff profile or doing a student profile once a month, you know, just committing to something small and getting it done, but keeping that list and then putting in whatever your project tracker is. And we use Asana here and also the Google Calendar with reminders and just getting those done. Yeah, and I, I also want to mention to go back to the Canva thing. Someone in the chat mentioned that it is free for nonprofit schools. So yes, that is, that's actually, that's a great point because as you're looking at tools that make your job easier, things like project management tools like Asana and Trello and Canva for using social, for creating social media graphics, def definitely check and see if they have free options for nonprofits. Many of them do. And so if you have been resistant to adopting a tool that can help you because you think it will be expensive, that may not necessarily be the case. So that's, that's a very important point. Yes, Salesforce is also free for nonprofit schools and helps hugely. Um, there are lots of CRM systems out there. I could probably, mm -hmm. you know, have a whole that's a whole other. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> that's that's great. We have someone requesting resources or templates to help put some of these things in place. I think Amanda, between the two of us, we can probably put some links together to yeah. include in the recording tomorrow for sure. I'm gonna take this last one because I, I think it speaks to a challenge that lots of folks have. How, what is the best way to connect with staff and team members who ignore the ask to meet, visit, or share? And I think what that's getting to is both trying to, recipro trying to reciprocate, so getting stories that you can share out, but also encouraging them to spread the word in their networks as well and do their part. So I have a fun, quick story about that. It's my the second university I ever worked at, and this was back in 2003-ish, I think, somewhere around there, 2004. I requested to meet with all the deans within, it, it was a very small graduate school, and one ignored me, and it's <laughs> not so bad. I kept a post-it note next to my computer is that every time that he didn't show up for a meeting or canceled a meeting, um, and then I went about my way. I met with the other deans, met some incredible faculty, um, and once I got, I think about, about a, maybe a month in, I had marked him about 18 times that he either didn't show up to our meeting or canceled it. Um, and I got one of the other faculty members in the huge daily, which if you remember how big daily newspapers used to be in, in a major city, and this person came running into my office and just yelled at me. 
you never do anything for our department. And, you know, I, you're, you're favoring the other departments. And I just said very sweetly, I said, I would absolutely love to meet with you anytime your calendar would allow for it. And then guess what? Open up the floodgates. So I'm not saying necessarily competition is good. However, you probably have a lot of teachers or faculty or administrators who do want to meet with you and are respecting what you're doing. If there is somebody that's a roadblock, however, and they are a big component of what you need to do, depending on your role, especially if it's an enrollment and it's preventing you from getting students enrolled or getting to the families and you have, I mean, evidence and maybe it's something and, I, and I'm not a big fan of, of going over anybody's head. However, if it's something that's going against the mission of the organization or it's going to hurt the, the school or school district, I think that's a time then to have a, a chat with a superior and, and just ask for advice, maybe not throw somebody under the bus. You know, my whole dissertation was on employee engagement, organizational culture. And so a lot of this actually stemmed from internal communications problems, which are 90% of the issue sometimes is when people don't want to meet. So um, my recommendation is start with the people who do want to meet with you and who do want to share stories. And if you have another, again, I just hate to say, it, I don't mean to put this in a bad way, but if you have somebody that's overseeing a specific area or specific school and they're not getting attention in your newsletter or on your blog or in the PR that you're doing because they are not getting back to you every time you try and just keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, you know what's going to happen is eventually a parent of a student in that school is going to say, well, why don't you ever cover anything in, in my kid's class or my kid's campus? Or, you know, I don't see anything coming out of our location or our school. And you don't have to throw anybody in that bus. I always recommend, in fact, don't throw anybody in the bus, especially to, to families and parents. Um, but internally, you can know and that, that pressure gets put on. And eight times out of 10 in the last 20 years I've had that experience because it's happened a lot. They come to you and they, they request a meeting and they start sending things. I think it's also, I'll, I'll close with this. It, it, having worked in a lot of different environments, honestly, where people don't necessarily recognize the role that they play in marketing and customer acquisition, you know, for to use a dirty word in, in education, it, it's really important to for people to understand why you're asking them to engage in the first place. And mm -hmm. so from a school perspective, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do as marketers, communicators, admissions professionals to help colleagues in non-administrative departments understand that we can't do our jobs without them. You know, we cannot recruit or retain students without providing an exceptional experience to those families. And that takes everyone. And so part of that is just sort of breaking down, you know, what it actually takes to build a class or to break to recruit families. Like, what does that process actually look like? And if I'm a math teacher, why do I care about our brand or messaging? or making sure that what we're saying in the marketplace aligns with what I'm actually doing in my classroom. I think we have to answer those questions more thoughtfully and share that message more consistently so that people understand, oh, this is why I'm getting an email from the director of communications asking me to do X, or this is why I'm being told that I should share this email with a friend. It provides that context because we're surrounded by people who didn't go to school for marketing. They didn't go to school for business. They went to school to teach 
to shape minds, you know, <laughs> to do all of that great yeah. work. And many of, of your colleagues in leadership are in similar positions. These are not people who have grown up with marketing and business backgrounds. So there's a little bit of internal education that needs to happen. And it can't happen once at an all hands meeting in August. It has to be a consistent message. And I think with that, Angela, I just want to tag team on that because when you get down to the teacher level, we have to respect what they're doing. Like they, yes. they're in the classroom. Um, I was yeah. never been a K through 12 classroom teacher, but as a full-time assistant professor, I worked 60 plus hours a week, every week. Um, and then the summers were spent rewriting curriculum and vetting textbooks and doing my research. And um, it's very, like the last thing on my mind, especially, and it's funny because I came from a, a marketing and school, school PR background. The last thing on my mind was to respond to requests because my first priority were really, it was the students. Right. So I think to your point, especially when we're talking about teachers and especially ones that you want to profile, um, yes. you know, explain to them, like, you know, if you need to be in the classroom and taking a photo, just saying, I will do everything I possibly can not to disrupt the class. Is there a better time that works for you? Would you rather yep. me send you interview questions by email and you can't answer them on your own time? Or do you want to have a call on your way home from work? I will work with what's best for you. And it's, I will say one of the things that can be very hard as a communicator or a marketer is you see these stories, and especially this is my PR news for nose for news. You see those <laughs> stories and you're like, oh man, this is gonna be the best story ever. This is gonna be phenomenal. If that teacher doesn't have the time or energy right now, you need to respect that and just back off for a while. I mean, yeah. put on your to-do list to follow up in a couple weeks. And if you don't hear from them again, then follow up in a couple weeks. And don't nag them too much. And to Angela's point is to just say, hey, we want to cover this because we think what you're doing for the for your students is awesome. And we'd love to interview, you know, um, Johnny or Jane who are in the class because we heard that they're doing a great job with the way that you're teaching this curriculum. And I think sometimes when you put it, the, the spotlight's not necessarily on them, on the teachers. I think that's that's really great. That's perfect. And that's a great place for us to end. So thank you again, Amanda, for sharing your wisdom with us this afternoon slash morning, depending on where you might be located. Um, and for everyone who hung on for an extra 15 minutes, we really appreciate your time today. Keep your eyes peeled for an email with the recording. And if we did not get to a question that you asked, please feel free to reach out to either one of us. Thanks again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Angela. Thanks everybody for tuning in.